Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were finishing up our tour of Masada, Remember that Jewish fortress for the the brave remnant that stood behind against the Romans. But we ended up having to hustle down Snake Path, the treacherous Snake Path. That was a little bit scary, but we had to hustle down that at the end so that we could make it on time to our next spot where we're actually going to do more hiking. It's going to be a long day, my friends. Right now, we're on the bus uh, just to a a spot that's very close to Masada. It's not going to be a long ride at all, about 30 minutes, and it's called Angeti. But as we're riding over there, let's finish talking about Masada. I know you may be tired from the long morning that started at, what, 3.30 a.m.? So feel free to close your eyes and just listen as we drive along. So back to Masada. You'll remember that Masada was the winter palace of King Herod. And then, like I said, it was used as a fortress for the Jewish remnant who, when they were eventually faced with a choice, they chose to die on top of Masada instead of falling into Roman captivity. As I've emphasized over and over again, the remnant chose to exercise their freedom to die rather than to fall into captivity. And some of us might find this to be very noble. They chose to die as slaves to only God, not the Romans. But it's interesting because some Jews are greatly angered by the choice of the remnant. They say that they refused to compromise and instead committed suicide. And and of course, uh, suicide is prohibited by the Torah, the Jewish law. So not only are some Jews angered, but others say that the mass suicide on Masada never happened, or that the Romans maybe tried to conquer the remnant, but the remnant escaped and and never did indeed die, at least not on Masada. Last time, we talked about the archaeologist Yigael Yadin. He was the main excavator of Masada in the 1960s. But a lot of people doubted his findings because they knew that he went in with a goal. His goal was actually to prove that there was a brave Jewish remnant who died on top of Masada. And we know that whenever you're trying to prove something, especially in the world of academia, it's possible that you can see things or can construe things that aren't true, but make them out to be true. And of course, at this time in Israel's history, we're talking about the 1960s, right? The state of Israel was just emerging, and Yadin knew that the story of Masada and, and proving that to be true would help to unite the Jews in their fight for the state. Kind of like how the remnant fought for their own survival. There's a parallel there. And we talked about an Israeli sociologist who wrote two books about Yedin's bias and tried to show the public that the story of Masada may not be an accurate one at all. Well, then there was Dr. Jody Magnus, an American archaeologist who is also a professor of early Judaism at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It's a very prominent archaeological school. Many digs that happen in Israel are done by the University of North Carolina. In fact, we've already walked by many probably, and maybe you've seen that sign out in front that has the the UNC logo. And what's really cool is Dr. Magnus, uh, I'm pretty sure that soon enough in the next few tours, we're actually going to get to meet Dr. Magnus and and hear about her life and and hear about what she's done over here in Israel and, and archaeology. So be looking forward to meeting Dr. Jody Magnus very soon. Well, Dr. Magnus wrote a book actually arguing that archaeology can't answer whether the story of Masada is true. Some archaeological evidence definitely points to it. For example, on top of Masada, there are some pottery shards. 
and these pottery shards have the names of the 12 remaining men who drew lots to see which one, of course, would be the last to die. We talked about that, right? How there were uh, a few remaining men who, who would all choose the, the last one who would kill the others and then kill himself. And this was, of course, after all those men had gone, had gone and slaughtered their families. But even, even with these pottery shards, the names can't be clearly made out, per se. And the leader's name, remember Elazar Benier, well, that name was never found on a shard. So even this archaeology, which is supposed to be concrete proof, can be doubted. And then there's the question of some bodies found on top of Masada. Were they Jewish? When Israel found these bodies at Masada, they were actually given a state burial and recognized as heroes, which indeed, if they are actually the Jews, is, is very much due them. But there's an anthropologist who's named Joe Zias, and then there's a forensics expert named Azriel Gorksky. And these two have actually said that these bodies were not Jewish. In fact, the bodies were Roman, and that further doubts the existence of the zealots on top of Masada. But in a way, maybe it even... Uh, is farther evidence for the fact that the, the zealots did exist on top of Masada. You'll, you'll see what I mean in a second. They noted that one skeleton of a woman had no hair on it. And upon farther analysis, they concluded that her hair had actually been cut off while she was still alive. So the narrative they posit stems from this chapter in Deuteronomy, where it says that a foreign woman who the Jews capture must have their hair cut off so that her beauty is removed. So they would say that the remnant actually captured some Romans trying to get in. Like how this Roman woman was supposedly captured and then had her hair cut off. So in the end, the Romans never overcame the remnant, but instead the remnant somehow escaped. So maybe that's evidence that the remnant did indeed exist on top of Masada. But they were able to get away. So I present this evidence almost as a devil's advocate, you could say. Like I've said for the past few tours, I believe that the story of the Jewish remnant committing mass suicide to escape Roman captivity on Masada is real. But some don't. And Virtual Voyager, for you to walk away from these tours with one-sided knowledge, also known as being what I, your tour guide, believe, well, that wouldn't be good. It definitely is a problem for historians that the only record we have of Masada is from Josephus, right? The historian. And he detailed a lot of Jewish and Roman history, and we're thankful for what he's given us. Without his records, we would be totally lost in so many areas. But there's a problem, because when he is the only historical record, when he's the only source for Masada, it makes us doubt this a little more. There's there's no one to back him up. So overall, Josephus' stories have been, been quite true, but there's also a question of, uh, did that happen the way that he is exactly saying it, and who were his eyewitnesses? Because, right, basically everyone on top of Masada, we believe, died. In my opinion, the evidence combined with tradition, evidence plus, plus Jewish tradition, something that the Jewish people take very seriously, well, that's enough to prove that there was a real Jewish remnant who was faced with the choice of death or captivity to the Romans, and they chose death. Well, we're approaching Engedi here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'll tell you all about this place in a moment. For now, just know we're going to do another hike, but this one will be pretty fun because there will be places to stop and swim along the way. So hopefully you have some water shoes in your bag or you can just be like me and soak your sneakers. They will definitely be ruined. 
But any sneakers that come to Israel with me always are. Between the long hikes and the dirt and the dust from the, from the desert and then always having to get them wet, they just don't make it for very long after I get them back to the States. Hop on out of the bus and let me go to the ticket center. En Gedi is a national park run by the Israeli Park Service, so I think they'll take our tour discount. Wait here for a moment. Okay, before we go any farther, fill up your water bottles at this station. The best part is that this water bottle station has water coming directly from the springs at En Gedi. You will love it. Now, we have to walk a good distance on a path to get to the spot of the trail that we want to get on. So as we walk, I'll just tell you a little bit about this place because it's certainly an awesome wilderness spot. Even if it didn't have any biblical significance, which it has so much significance, you could still enjoy looking at the wildlife to the left and right and the springs and the cliffs towering in the air. Do you look up there? Look at that. Some of those cliffs are huge. But that's not all En Gedi has to offer. En Gedi is a Hebrew transliteration. And if we break this down, we'll be able to understand what En Gedi offers a little bit more. So, of course, transliteration, we know what that means, right? It's taking the sounds from another language like Hebrew, which doesn't have our alphabet, and it fits those sounds to English letters. But, of course, when you just hear En Gedi, it probably doesn't mean anything to you. You don't get a sense of what is here at En Gedi. But the English translation is Spring of the Kid, or Spring of the Young Goat. It's odd to have a place that's called spring because if you look back just turn around and look behind you see the dead sea there it's right out behind us right and, and you'll see just the whole dead sea region all of the desert we're here in the middle of the desert but that's why en Gedi here is an oasis oh look stop right here see the animal kind of looks like a deer over there to the left it it has horns coming off of it and the horns curve off of its head that is an ibex we hear about them in the bible too when Saul was chasing David, which as a matter of fact happened right here in this area, 1 Samuel says that Saul chased David in the direction of the wild goats, or as it should be translated, ibexes. But of course, a lot of people will translate it as wild goats because you can't conceptualize the idea of an ibex. But now you can, and they're super cool. They're able to climb the mountains with such ease. Just look straight ahead now, and, and you can see they kind of blend in with the tannish mountains out there in front of us, but you can make out a few. It does almost look like they're going to fall off, but they don't. They have a special ability to walk on the cliffs and maintain their footing. It is remarkable. Something else that's interesting about them is that when they give birth, they have to give birth in a specific position so that their young don't fall down the mountain. And this is actually mentioned in one of the very last uh, few chapters of Job. Going back to Job, you'll remember that he was a man who suffered a lot, and he really didn't deserve any of it, we could say. Well, when he asked God about why he was having to suffer, God responded to him, and he told Job of his great power, and how Job didn't need to worry, because God had, uh, well, God had designed everything in the world, in the universe, to work perfectly, just like the ibex is giving birth. So that's the meaning of, of verse 1 in chapter 39 of Job that says, do you know the season when the mountain goats, ibexes, give birth? There's a whole explanation we'd have to go to uh, to understand more of Job's story, and maybe one day we will. I once spent an entire college semester researching Job and his interactions with God because there's so much to consider there. 
But all that goes to show that Ibexes are in the Bible, and they are very much so real today. Whenever I read a passage with an Ibex in it, it's always just so much more real. Because I've seen one, and now you have too. We've seen them with our very eyes. Let's keep walking along here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We have to hike about an hour in total to get to the Chocolithic Sanctuary, which is from thousands of years ago. We don't want to miss it, even if our feet do hurt a little bit in the process of getting there. Oh my, we are hitting the jackpot today. This is going to be a little harder to see, but it's another animal. I love Engedi for this reason alone. It's been preserved so well as the oasis that it's intended to be. And for so many animals, there's no place where they can cool off, right? Because we're in the middle of the desert. So having these rocks, having these water sources is super crucial for them and for their survival. Okay, this animal gets a little bit jumpy. So move slowly, but look out to your about, mm, probably your one o'clock almost, almost straight ahead, but, but just a little bit over, right? See in the crag there, the rock, there's a little animal that looks like a raccoon or, or a rabbit. Not quite, but, but that's the best estimation I have. This is amazing because it's a hyrax. A lot of people see them as pests here in Israel. Okay, but I think they're kind of cute. I'll admit it. You can keep your eyes peeled as we go along. And we might even find some more because they are, are quite populous here in the area of Engedi. One of my best memories from my times here at Engedi is with a hyrax, indeed. My family and I were hiking along the trail, and we saw one in this part of the rock that had a circle cutout. It was a really weird rock. It was basically a circle, right? And you could just look right through, and, and you'd see the mountains behind Engedi. And the hyrax was sitting there in the circle in the circle on the rock, and we got some amazing pictures of that hyrax. And then, of course, you, through the circle behind the hyrax, you could see the rest of the desert and the mountains behind us. It was just beautiful. And this hyrax was a little more friendly, too. So we all sat down around the hyrax, not too close, but, but in the vicinity, and we listened to our tour guide, and the hyrax was our friend. He stayed for a good while. It's quite cool. Of course, hyraxes, you may have even read about them in the Bible and, and not known what they were. Proverbs chapter 38, yeah, Proverbs 30, it talks about hyraxes being creatures of little power, though it says that they make their home in the crags, the, the rock, right? And that hyrax they mention, that little creature of power is exactly what is in front of us. Well, we've made great time and we're just about here at the Chalcolithic Temple. This temple dates back to about 4000 BC. This right here was a cultural center for the various nomads that were spread out around this area thousands of years ago. And it makes sense, right? Because they needed water, they needed some oasis, so why wouldn't they come here and settle in Engedi? And we know that they were here because lots of artifacts were found here. And the dry heat does tend to preserve things very well, that dry heat of the desert. Well, we can't go down into the temple, but let's look at it from up here. It's a dilapidated st uh, stone structure. And I guess that's to be expected for something this old, right? But we can still make out the outer walls. And then see how it would have been divided and had various rooms. And we can kind of see the layout. It would have been a great spot as it overlooks the Dead Sea. But you're still in the area of Engedi where there is water. So there would have been statues to all the various gods that these nomadic tribes worshipped. And those artifacts, some of them, are even still being found. So I just wanted you to see that because it's, it's pretty cool to get a sense of what Engedi has been able to do for people 
uh, throughout the history of the world, right? Well, next up here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, let's continue our hike over to a waterfall. The hike to get there is super fun. Come on. First, we have to go in between a bunch of palm branches. Okay, now let's enter. It's kind of dark and muddy. And the taller virtual voyagers have to bend over to pass through. And below us, there's a drop-off. So make sure to stay to the left here. But down there, I can hear a stream flowing. This would have been the perfect setting for a thriller, where people are chasing each other through the desert. Can you imagine? Well, little spoiler, it already has been used for that, and, and we'll get there. Oh, check it out. Do you see the animals running in front of us? If I'm not mistaken, those are some wild boars. They show up all over Israel, and recently, they've even proven to be a problem for people because they've gotten into the cities and now wander about in the midst of the city. I think we're fine from this distance. Actually, I, I know we're fine. We're not going to do anything to upset them. We're not going to be attacked, but some people are worried about being attacked by the boars. And you can imagine, you're all of a sudden in your Jerusalem apartment, and these wild boars are there? A little bit odd. They honestly just look like pigs, and it's expected to see them here in Engedi because, of course, there is so much wildlife here. After all, this is a protected space of 14,000 dunams. Okay, that's 3,500 acres, uh, all protected for wildlife. I just said dunam. That might be confusing. It was to me when I first heard it, but it's actually a measurement of land that the Turkish Empire used to use. And the name and the measurement has stuck in Israel. So a lot of times people refer to dunams. But thankfully, they know that Americans like us need to have it converted to acres to understand what they mean. But can you imagine trying to take your trash out and then having a boar show up just in a city like Tel Aviv or Jerusalem? And people worry that it might even attack them. Not the greatest thing to wake up to. But funnily enough, people have actually been late to work in recent days because the boars block the road on occasion. And then they have to wait for them to move. And they're not sometimes the fastest animals around. Oh, there they go! Back off away from the tourists. I guess they're not super people friendly. It's okay. We're almost out to the other side on this hike through the mud, the water, and the palm branches. Perfect, made it through that. Next, we have to hike up the side of the mountain, but thankfully, the park service has created steps for us in the rock. But they're still pretty uh, steep and slick, so it's easy to lose your footing. You can hold onto the handrail, uh, but another problem, that's kind of hot from having the sun beat down on it. So just be extra careful, and hopefully you wore some, some shoes uh, with some good soles, unlike my siblings who enjoy wearing Crocs, and somehow managed to also not slip. Can you feel the lactic acid building up in your calves and your quads? I can. Hiking is no joke. But we're very close to the top. I can start to hear it, what we're trying to get to, the loud crashes of a waterfall. We just have to turn this corner, and then... The glorious, the majestic sound of a 120-foot waterfall in the middle of a desert. The water all collects into a small pool that some people are standing in. We're not going to do that because that's definitely not allowed. Note the signs around us saying not to enter the pool and the rope that stops you from entering, although people still duck under it. You can imagine why they don't want people going under the waterfall even though it would be amazing to have that water crashing down on you. 
It's so cool and refreshing, and we're hot from our hikes, but I promise there are better uh, better uh, places where we'll be able to get cooled off in, in some pools coming up. Think about this. What if a small stone comes down the stream that flows into the waterfall? Well, that stone, as per the, the rules of physics, is going to pick up speed at the rate of 9.8 meters per second squared for 36 meters, 120 feet, of that waterfall, and if this simple stone hits you on the head, you'd be very injured, perhaps even dead. What if something bigger came down? That'd be even worse, be really bad. So the Park Service wisely closed this off as a precaution because that would be a worst case scenario. And so I know it's tempting to have the cool water right there in front of us and to think about it hitting our backs, especially because we're so hot, but we're going to stay here and obey the rules. You can wade in the pool that isn't marked off by the ropes and cool off there. It's remarkable that something this beautiful could exist, period. It's even more remarkable to think that something this stunning is in the middle of the desert. Just look out around us. Well, well we're kind of in the middle of, of the woods a little bit here of Engedi, but if we were to just go up a little bit and look out, we would see that we really are in the desert, in the Dead Sea region. But the water right there is, is flowing. And then see all the green plants growing out of the side of the cliff. It's truly like a natural wonder. I could sit here for hours and just watch the water come from the top and hit the ground. But we can't right now since we're out of time. So we'll have to pick up right here in Engedi next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we remain in Angeti and continue our hike. We're also going to see another waterfall, which is believed to be the spot where David hid from Saul in the wilderness. I hope you'll join us next time on the virtual voyage.